0: Father in heaven, we are so grateful for this day and for your many blessings to us. We pray that you all bless our time here today. Our responsibility today is a serious one, and we take it seriously. But we also know that you um, understand these issues far better than we do. And one of the biggest theological conflicts that's ever existed we call the Great Controversy. And the only solution you had for that was Jesus Christ. And Lord, we know that even that did not solve it for everybody. So we pray that as we meet together and talk today, that you will help us to be realistic, but also find as many answers as we can in this brief period of time. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Um, Those of you who have been part of the class that I've been teaching in the afternoon on... Uh, Righteousness by Faith uh, have, especially yesterday, been reminded of some of the issues that can come into the church or that did come into the church and have come into the church as a result of Satan's attack against the true message that God wants His people to have. God has a message He wants everybody to understand, but the devil wants to make sure they don't understand that. We should not be surprised that, number one, God's church continues to be attacked both from outside and from within. We should not be surprised that it is theological confusion and theological conflict that comes in. Sometimes that theology is simply aberrant theology that is just off the wall. Other times it is connected to things that we believe but takes off on a different tangent. Um, and whatever it is, Satan is trying to sidetrack from the work that God is leading us forward to do. This is a leadership class. That's why it's part of the sequence of elders and deacons and deaconesses training that I've done earlier in the week. Whether you're here or not is not relevant to that statement. What I'm saying is uh, the context of what I'm sharing today is that you are leaders in the church, and as leaders in the church have a responsibility to care for your church and to be shepherds of that congregation and helping them understand that not everything everybody, anybody comes along teaching is correct. That is biblically sound. We should not be surprised. If you go to the book Great Controversy, there's a couple chapters on there, in there that specifically talk to the fact that the only safeguard we are going to have at the end of time is the scriptures. And that without a deep understanding and knowledge of the scriptures, we will be led astray. We're seeing that all around us. People are being taken off for this reason and that reason. You are seeing it in your churches, which is very likely why you are here today to talk about this subject. We all want to be kind and Christ like, and I'm giving you a general introduction now, and I'll get into this in the slides here in just a few moments. But we all want to be Christ like, and we want to be caring, and we should be, and we must be. At the same time, we may have to remember. That Revelation chapter 12, verses 7 to 9 says there was peace in heaven. There was war in heaven. And as a result of that war, some of the people that were the leaders of the church were cast out of heaven. It should not surprise us that the leaders that were cast out from heaven came down to this earth and that the church today is still having to encounter that same kind of a challenge. So as we talk about it, I'm going to give you two, the the presentation today is going to be in two parts. The first part is a general discussion of managing conflict in the church. Those of you who have been in my leadership classes before, you will see some familiarity here. That is a, for you it's a reminder, for those of you who are new to the class today, it is uh, an introduction to the fact that we are talking about conflict. This is theological conflict. This is theological warfare. And how do we manage that warfare that's in our church? There are some basic principles that apply to that. And yesterday in uh, Deacon Deaconess' class, talked a little bit about conflict management as well. Um, I'm going to get more into that today. That's part of the class. The other part of the class is taking um, a survey look not a detailed look, but a surveyed look at a couple of the areas that are especially being attacked in the Michigan conference. And some of the tools that we are using in order to be able to try to deal with that, those situations. And I'm going to put those materials in your hands uh, so that you can take them home and they will tools for you. But I do want to give you a realistic expectation of what this means. There is no magic bullet for any of these problems that will suddenly come in and zap. You've taken care of that problem in that church. Those people will suddenly be converted and your church will have no more struggles. So I hope you are realistic about that and that uh, you will see what I'm talking about as we get into our class today. Because God is holy and righteous, His church has set standards of moral and social behavior they reflect the character of God. These standards are based upon biblical principles which are eternal and unchanging. Every pap- person baptized into the church promises to follow these standards. Those standards relate to lifestyle. They relate to what we believe. They be- relate to uh, all these different aspects of our connection with God and with Our brothers and sisters in the church, also our witness to the community. Speaking in a very general sense, these standards and these um, foundations upon which our church is built from the Word of God sometimes come into conflict. And when they come into conflict because of the fact we are involved in the great controversy, the church has to have some understanding of how to face those kinds of issues. Unfortunately, in the more recent history of the Seventh-day Adventist Church and of our local Seventh-day Adventist churches, the general direction that our churches have been taking is to ignore things that are happening in the church. If someone is violating the standards of the church, they tend to turn a blind eye to those, those issues or a deaf ear to those issues. And for a while, that seems to be okay. It just, it, it, you know, it's no conflict. There's no challenge. I don't have any confrontations with people. I don't like confrontation. I'm, I'm speaking about me, okay? <laughs> and, and we don't like that for a while. But it only lasts for a while. And then it begins to come to the surface. And in time, it destroys the church. Recently, I saw a post on Facebook, and I am on Facebook, my main reason for being there is I like to know what's going on, and I learn a lot about what's going on. It's also a good way to screen pastors. I'll leave it at that. At any rate, I saw a post on there, it was from a former pastor and his wife, and I say former, former in Michigan, still a pastor today. If I gave you his name, you would know who he is. He's a good man, happens to have actually taken a post of leadership in one of the conferences in the United States. At any rate, he, uh, his wife especially, they were posting on here, we have suddenly discovered that within our church, and I, I, I always struggle with this, suddenly discovered that within our church are people who have this certain theology and and they've been here for so long, they've been slowly sharing this information within the church, and all of a sudden it's devastating our church. (coughs) That's what happens when we as elders, deacons, and deaconesses don't do our job. When we're not visiting in our church, we're not getting acquainted with people, we're not discussing with people what's going on in their hearts and their lives, we're not connecting with people. Now let me tell you that, it happens sometimes even when we do that. Because if people want to be clandestine enough, they can do it and they can hide it. But usually someone is going to come and tell you, you know, I was just talking to brother so-and-so and he was telling me something. i never heard this before. Man, that was pretty, pretty fascinating. Let me tell you about it. But if we never talk to people, you don't know what's going on around there. And if we're just doing our work from the platform on Sabbath morning or taking up the offering on Sabbath morning, we're not getting connected with that kind of information. Don't wake up in your church and suddenly find out your church is devastated. When you know something's going on, have a plan, have a purpose ahead of time. Discuss this as elders, deacons, and deaconesses. How many of you have one of those offices in your church? Your elder, deacon, or deaconess, okay? So many of you fill that responsibility. Others may be in a different capacity. So let's talk a little bit about discipline for a moment because that is the foundation for the methodology by which we begin to seek to address issues that uh, that come in our church. The whole idea of discipline is very offensive to many people today. Discipline rightly understood is correction. It's not punishment. It's redemption. It's not abuse. The reason we discipline our our children is not to abuse them. It's to save them. When you tell your child, please don't uh, run in the freeway, it's to save them. I've got good news and I have bad news, Shelley. Would you please just do a quick head count of here and then make additional copies accordingly? Okay, Uh, okay. you can do that from back there and just count the number of people in here and then add to 20, please. (laughs) Sorry about that. I underestimated how many would be here. So you need to take all those originals, you know, the originals from that and just run them. Yeah, you made 20. Add uh, however many in here to that, okay? So we, we have to remember that the purpose of discipline is to save, not destroy. And that means our methodology is not going to be pulling out the whip and start beating people. I don't mean physically. You wouldn't do that anyway. I'm talking about spiritually or emotionally. We are seeking to work with people and to be able to encourage them and encourage their hearts and correct So how does the church have to correct a member, does the church have to correct a member who has seriously broken God's law or violated their understanding of the word of God? How does the church treat members who are not living up to its high standard or its level of understanding of theology? What are the steps toward correcting the wrongs of members? When and how should the church discipline its members? When and how should the church, I think I just had that, sorry about that. Whether saved or unsaved, God's love is the same for all people. Amen? Amen. Jesus came and died for people He knew would not accept His correction and would not accept His sacrifice, and yet He still came and died for them. That includes us, doesn't it? Whenever the church needs to take action concerning a member who's fallen into sin, let each one of us be reminded that Jesus gave his life, that erring members just as much as he gave it for us, for that erring member, just as much as he gave it for us. In Testimonies, Volume 7, it says, Human beings are Christ's property, purchased by him at an infinite price. How careful, then, we should be in dealing with one another. The foundation of our discussion today is Jesus' love for His people and His church. Amen? That's our foundation. You may say, well, we take that for granted. No, let's not take that for granted. Let's recognize that often we forget that as the basis for what we do in our church. And let me suggest to you that poor discipline is easy to do. Appropriate discipline in the church takes planning, effort, prayer, working together, seeking the Holy Spirit, having a direction to go, and then taking that direction when it's necessary. Again, she says, if wrongs are apparent among His people, and if the servants of God pass on indifferent to them, they virtually sustain and justify the sinner, and are alike guilty and will just as surely receive the displeasure of God, for they will be held, I'm sorry, made responsible for the sins of the guilty. If you have a problem in your church where a church member is robbing banks and you do not correct that situation, you are just as guilty and before God as a leader as if you were robbing those banks. Is that not what that just said? Do you see that here? If we don't deal with the issue, they virtually sustain and justify the sinner and are like guilty and will just as surely receive the displeasure of God for they will be made responsible for the what? The sins of the guilty. All right, I didn't give that to you to scare you. I just gave that to you so that we're all realistic about the fact that the challenges that we face today in the church Whether it's worldliness, whether it's outright disobedience to the commandments, or it's theological conflict where people are coming up with their own theology and rebelling against what the Bible teaches and our understanding of what the Bible teaches. Whether it's one of those things or not, we are responsible for what happens. And we need to realize that the longer we bury our heads in the sand, the more damage that gets done in the local church the more difficult it is going to be for us to correct that. Now the good news is, any sin we commit, including the guilt of, over, uh, of um, overlooking the sins here, we need to understand Jesus will forgive us for that. But we have to repent for it, and repentance means turning from that action and taking on the action that God wants us to accomplish. So if you and your church have been guilty of not taking a stand for the Lord Jesus Christ on something in the church that needs to be done, then the time is now to repent of that. It's part of the work of the Laodicean work message that is included in Revelation chapter 3. God wants us to be moving in His direction under His plan according to that plan. She goes on in volume 3 of the testimonies and she said, God holds his people as a body responsible for the sins existing in individuals among them. If the leaders of the church neglect to diligently search out the sins which bring the displeasure of God upon the body, they become responsible for these sins. Anybody here still want to say you're an elder or a deacon or a deaconess in your church? Were you thinking of resigning right about now? I also want you to understand that when she says what she says here, diligently search out the sins, it does not mean that we go to our elders' meeting and say, Folks, we need to begin a search and destroy mission. And uh, we'd like to assign visitation to all of our elders, and we're going to ask the deacons and deaconesses to come in and be a part of this. We're going to go out, and we're going to visit all all our members in the next month. And what we're looking for is all of the aberrant theology and all of the bad things that these folk are doing. Is that what that means? No. No. It means that we need to be attentive. We do need to be doing our duty. And that's why we talked in our basic class in the last couple of days for both of these leadership positions. And as those of you who have been in my class in years past, we've always talked about the need to be visiting our members and to be connecting with them. We need to be building relationships with them. Not so we can seek out their mistakes but so that when those mistakes show up and those errors show up, we need to be there to shepherd them and to begin moving them in the right direction by taking them to the Word of God and helping them to see the direction God is trying to take them. If there were no church discipline and government, the church would go to fragments and it could not hold together as a body. I'm working right now with a church that has so much history in this kind of thing, that it went from 200 members in the years past to just a few people attending today, relatively speaking. Fortunately, by the grace of God, beginning to move in the other direction. Already, though, the devil's not happy with that. Sorry about that. It's a war. It's It's an ongoing battle, and it's a war. And that is what makes this... Challenge. But the good news is, Jesus is stronger than the devil. Jesus loves people more than the devil wants to destroy them. But God wants us to work to keep it together. But if we don't do it, churches will be destroyed and fragment and will disappear. And I've seen that happen in the Michigan Conference, not just one place, but several places. So, we need to keep that in mind. It needs to be that foundation. We must not put our head in the sands. We must learn to move ahead. Sin cannot be ignored in the congregation. And sin is aberrant theology. It is disobedience to commandments. It is whatever is moving people away from a connection with Jesus Christ and the truth of the Word of God. That is sin. and So, we need to, as a church, as church leaders, understand that. While gentleness, love, and mercy must be shown to members who have fallen into sin, the church has a responsibility to take action concerning that sin. Christ's method is very clear for us. And I've taught a class in this uh, whole redemptive discipline. Uh, I don't remember, would I teach that last year? I think it was last year, wasn't it, Ray? And uh, those principles are there where we get into this whole Matthew eighteen process more extensively. I'm just superficially going over that today to give us a framework for what I'm going to do in the last part of our class. When the church has done all it can to reclaim erring members without success, Jesus says that they should then be considered as outside the church. The principles of rev uh, I'm sorry Matthew eighteen are if we find that there's a problem that needs to be corrected. There's been a disagreement among members or there's uh, a sin in the camp or whatever it is that needs to be dealt with. The best way to deal with it is the smallest number of people possible to deal with it. One to one is the best. When one and one fails to accomplish its purpose, then you go two on one. In other words, two leaders, three leaders go and visit, as the Bible says, go and connect with them and pray with them and seek to lead them in the direction. If that works, you're done with your problem and you praise the Lord, you move on. If that doesn't work, eventually it has to come to the church for correction. And many times, just about the time that's happening, the person says, I see you're serious. You really think this is a problem, my life. You're not just going to go buy this, are you? And some people turn the corner. They come back to Jesus realizing that you care enough about them to show them the, the area where they need to grow in, and then they turn around and go the other way. Others entrench themselves, and it eventually comes to the church and has to be dealt with. When that happens, Jesus says they should then be considered as outside the church. Disfellowship, disfellowship members should not, however, be removed from the church's love, prayers, and concern. As a matter of fact, when Jesus says that they should be treated as though they are a Republican or somebody who is not a a Christian or a follower of God, what do we do for those people? We work harder than ever to bring them into the church, and we shouldn't suddenly now shut the door and slam it tight and have a closed-door theology towards people. We should be doing everything we can to redeem them. But you, when it comes to theological issues, you are going to have to understand that there is a real challenge with allowing people to continue to attend your church. We'll get to that in a moment. Disfellowshipping should be carefully considered when you're dealing with discipline. It is an extreme action which may be taken only when every other action to reclaim them has been attempted. I have seen churches labor with diligence, literally for years trying to help people get the right direction and move that direction. At times, that's a mistake. Because the longer you deal with theology that is aberrant and allow it to continue to persist, the more it entrenches itself and it spreads like a cancer in the church. So you have to be careful of that. But I do commend churches for being careful about the process and doing everything they possibly can. But unfortunately, myself as a leader and and us as a leadership team in the conference have also come to a realization that in one case I can think of, we labored much too long in that situation and should have intervened more directly, more quickly, and dealt with it. Because we didn't, that began to spread much farther than I believe it might have had we been able to address it more directly. If you want to know more about that, check out the church manual. By the way, there is a section of the church manual, I believe it begins on page 56, which deals with discipline and works through that. Looking again at Ellen White in Volume 7 of the Testimonies, no church officer should advise, no committee should recommend, nor should any church vote, that the name of a wrongdoer shall be removed from the church books until the instruction given by Christ has been faithfully followed. Faithfully follow the steps that Christ outlines. But that means faithfully, timely, doing this work, and then that needs to be brought before the church and the action may need to be taken of actually either um, what has been called in the, pa- in the past as uh, putting people on uh, censure, or we sometimes today put it in a uh, better, a period of grace. Thank you so much, Shelley. appreciate that. So uh, love and mercy is our guide to all our action. In our dealing with those who make mistakes, love must guide that. Many feel it's their duty to root out sin in the church. God has not given them this work. Now that's what Ellen White says, but she, you understand it in the context that our work, and as, unless we're a leader in the church, members of the church, their work is not to go out trying to root out all the problems in the church. But the leaders have the responsibility as shepherds of the congregation to be continuing to uh, guide that church, and when the areas come in, they need to be dealing with it. The presence of the pastor is essential. No individual church member has the authority to disfellowship another, and nor does the church board. This has to be taken to a business meeting and dealt with in that particular manner. Now I'm going over that very quickly. That's time for another class. I want to go on to resolving conflicts in the church because it's not just discipline, but it's also conflict. It's disagreement. Um, sometimes it 's discriminant of uh, a position other times it's sometimes uh, it 's a, a personality clash, other kinds of things that again is the root of our conversation here as we 're getting into the theological issues. We are seeking the lost. The principle of Matthew eighteen is that we are seeking to save those that are lost. A person who is lost uh, a person is lost when they are allowing sin to dominate their lives now. I want to pause here for a moment and make this clear. If a person is, and I use the robbing banks because most of our church members are not robbing banks, but I hope you will make the transition to the sins that are, are true in our church. And I'm not telling you that there are no Adventists who ever robbed banks. Now, yeah, there are some that have done that. But the sins that are in the church need to be addressed. And some of them are being ignored by our churches. And we need to understand that when sins are present, and we're all sinners, so don't misunderstand me, but when I'm I'm talking about open, blatant sin, clear violation of the Ten Commandments, working on Sabbath is a clear violation of the Ten Commandments, having a a, a man in your life who's not your husband is a clear violation of the Commandments. Or the other way around in that relationship. Whatever the case, it's it's a violation of the commandments. Someone in your church is going around telling lies about everybody, is violating the Ten Commandments. Whatever it is, that sin is going to cause those people to be lost eternally. Do we understand that? That's what I have to come face to face with when I'm dealing with this kind of an issue. Jesus loves those people. But if they continue to dwell and live in that sin and think it's okay, they will be lost when Jesus comes. Or they will die in their sin and they will not be resurrected in the first resurrection. They will be resurrected in the second resurrection. And the Bible says in Revelation 20, you don't want to be resurrected in the second resurrection. I said... It says it there, but anyway, you don't want to be resurrected in that resurrection. A person is lost when they're allowing sin into their lives. A person can be lost with their membership status and good and regular standing. Our churches often look at these issues and they say, if I take their name off the books, maybe they'll get upset and go go away. They might. It's true, they might. But if you leave it on the books, they might not be in heaven. Now, which is worse, them going away from the church and then at some point coming back or them staying in the church and being lost eternally? Which is worse? I know that was a rhetorical question, but I understand that we sometimes have to verbalize that is a problem. If we do nothing, they may be lost forever. So Matthew 18 has the steps that I've already talked about and I don't want to go back into that. I want to remind you of the power of forgiveness. We must not forget the power and the place of forgiveness. Matthew 18, 21 and 22 remind us of the fact that God is a forgiving God. The parable of the unforgiving servant reminds us that it has tremendous implications for the issues of resolving conflict. That parable that Jesus told reminds us that an unforgiving servant of Jesus, that is an unforgiving Christian, an unforgiving disciple of Jesus, (coughs) risks being told to be cast out of the church, so to speak, into everlasting fire. And, And you and I don't want that experience. You and I need to learn to be forgiving. If we were talking today, and our, our, our role is to talk about conflict in theology, but if we're talking about interpersonal conflict, and people can't learn to forgive each other, they risk not being in, in heaven because of an unforgiving heart. And the reason for that is not just because they're not forgiving. It's because Christ has first forgiven them. And they are not turning around and applying the principles of love that Christ has applied to them and, and forgiving other people. Therefore, they have not accepted the forgiveness of Jesus. And you and I cannot be saved if we don't accept the forgiveness of Jesus. Amen? All right, so there are some biblical t- tools for resolving conflicts in our church, interpersonal conflicts especially, communion is one of them. Whatever the conflict may be, intervention of church leaders is a great one. The church manual is also a great tool to help us. Biblical and church tools, yes, Dave? <laughs> I went over that so quick and uh, you were quickly thinking. That's good. Let me back that up. Let's say there's a conflict between you, Dave, and uh, another brother in the church. The way that's a tool is when we. Go come to that quarterly experience. Pastors often will preach a sermon the Sabbath before, reminding people we're coming up to communion next week. If there's anything that's between you and a brother, you need to go and get that corrected so as you come to communion, you can wash one another's feet and you can can set that difference behind you. So communion becomes a tool by which we're reminded periodically that we must not allow situations to fester between our brothers and our sisters to resolve conflict. So that's how it becomes a tool. It's a good question. It also involves intervention of leaders, leaders doing their visitation, leaders recognizing the issues there. As I told the deacons deaconesses class yesterday, and many of you were present there who are elders as well, again I reminded you that this work of leaders is to stop conflict. That's why deacons and deaconesses got their position in the first place in Acts chapter 6 is because of that whole situation of conflict and the leaders had needed to intervene. Uh, this is a little hard to read. I'm sorry, I should change that color. I hate it when people put blue up on the screen like this, but if your eyes start doing this, I apologize. I apologize. Christians should make every effort to avoid tendencies that would divide them and bring them bring dishonor to their cause. It is the purpose of God that His children shall blend in unity. Do they not expect to live together in the same heaven? Those who refuse to work in harmony greatly dishonor God. Now understand this has two sides to it. The obvious side is that we need to learn to get along with each other. All right? But we also need to remember that There's another side. Those who refuse to work in harmony greatly dishonor God. And the ones who, that might be us not getting along with our brother and sister. But it might also be a brother or sister who have picked up er errant theology and who refuse to listen to the fact that this is destroying the harmony in the church. And those are individuals who are greatly dishonoring God. I've had to tell some people who've come to me and tried to share their theology with me that what they are doing is not following the way of Christ when they go off trying to force their way into our churches. That's not the Christian method by which they do what they do. They go and they try to sneak into our churches on Sabbath morning. They try to sneak into a Sabbath school class. And I say sneak They don't sneak as in crawl under the table, come in. They walk straight into the church, come into a Sabbath school class. They're sitting there until they get an opportunity to speak. And then what comes out of their mouth is disunity, and it begins to question the unity of the church. It begins to question the theology of the, of the Word of God and begins to divide. And then they just kind of sneak back on, back on out and hopefully they get some phone numbers and some addresses of people so they can connect with those people and they start to build their base that way. It's exactly what's happening in the Michigan conference today in church after church after church. You and I need to be ready for this. So one of the things I'm trying to help you to do in terms of managing conflict is to understand that you not only need to understand theologically what's going on, you even more importantly need to be prepared to manage this from a structural point of view. And I'm going to come to that in a moment. If matters of difficulty between brethren were not laid open before others, but frankly spoken of between themselves and the spirit of Christian love, how much evil might be prevented, how many roots of bitterness whereby many are defiled would be destroyed, and how closely and tenderly might, be the, follower, might the followers of Christ be united in his love. All right, now that's the foundation for what we're going to do in the last 25 minutes of our class. The foundation is we're trying to save. Okay? Everybody with me on that? The the foundation is that we are trying to save using the tools that we have in the church that begin with personal interaction with people, but also build on our ability to work with people step by step, trying to correct along the way Till finally we may have to use the the worst tool that we have, but the most serious tool that we have, but the one that we don't use, I don't want to say enough, but that we are sometimes afraid to use, and that is actually asking people to no longer be a member of the church because they no longer believe what we believe. And that's where we are today. I've got one more slide, so it didn't get into your notes. I added it later, but here's that slide. I want to share with you today about three different groups. Actually, I put up Charles Wheeling. I'm going to mention him just very briefly. The two that we are facing the most prevalently right now are Branch Davidians. And Branch Davidians come in a lot of different forms. Branch Davidians are one form; shepherds' rods are another form. They are just—they come out of the same basic uh, uh, root, and uh, and then go on from there. And I don't understand all of the theology and all of the history. I have some understanding of it, but I've not exhausted my resource or research in relationship to this. But I'm going to start with this, and I've got some materials. So if you would uh, take this material, and I want to just give you a little bit of an idea here of a a situation that we have in the Michigan Conference, and I say the Michigan Conference in Michigan, not in the conference, but in Michigan, and where there are some challenges along this. So I want to review a little bit of this with you to give you a little bit of, let me give you a little bit of context before I go into this. Elder Jim Howard, how many of you remember Jim Howard? Okay, well, he was here on the campgrounds early in this camp meeting. And then he had to get on a plane and fly to China, I understand. Oh, wow. Um, That's a lot of work. (laughs) At any rate, he was pastoring in the Detroit area um, some time ago. And his churches were growing and making a lot of progress when all of a sudden something showed up in his church. And there were some individuals who decided that... uh, they were relatively recent Seventh-day Adventists, baptized members. But they had, I don't know how they got connected with us. I don't remember how it happened. Oh, yes, I do, because they sat in my office not long ago, and I remember they told me a little bit of the story. And what they did is they, um, they had been, you know, people come into the church, and the Bible speaks of these people who are blown by every wind of doctrine that comes along, Right. And so I had the experience with some people like this in, in my churches in Plymouth, uh, Plymouth, my church in Plymouth a number of years ago, a lot of years ago. And, and some people I studied with, and they knew so much about what we believed, and they, uh, they'd had a journey. I think they'd basically come out of a hippie-type environment. Uh, and hippies had a tendency to really be connected with good health uh, practices in terms of uh, diet anyway, maybe not some other good health practices. Uh, drugs and a few other kinds of things, but they did have that focus. And these people came into the church through the health message. And they had learned a lot about these things and they just kind of blew right into the church. But people sometimes who get blown right into the church. I mean, I hardly had to study with them. And I mean that only in the sense that everything I studied with them, they just kind of went down the line that they understood most of it already. And so when we talked about it, it was right there. We just went, you know, sometimes you'll study with the Bible for two or three years or five years with people before they'll make a decision. But these folk, I mean, they were just right there. They knew one of the leaders in the church who was a health educator in the community and they were ready for baptism right into the church very, very quickly. A year or two later, along comes uh, aberrant theology, and they kick right in with it, and then they went out. That happens. So Jim Howard had this situation in his church, and these uh, the couple of these folk uh, had gotten online, and they had started reading about something. It was something that bothered this one lady, she told me. She said there was just something about this passage in Scripture that bothered her. And she just couldn't get an answer. And anybody she asked couldn't give her an answer. So she went online, and lo and behold, she found the answer. In other words, if you want to get an answer to something, and you're willing to go anywhere to get it, you'll probably find it. And the trouble is that people are looking for to understand why the seventh-day Sabbath is not being kept, and they go to the Bible, and they look there, and they find it. They go there, and they come. They come to the Seventh-day Adventist Church, and they say, I know the Bible says the seventh-day is is the Sabbath, so I looked online, I found out about you, here I am. That's good, yes? That's good. But knowing where to stop and be found uh, on a, built on a strong foundation in the church is difficult. That was the beginning of their journey out of the church. They had come into the church. That was their journey out. They got connected with this. Now, let me give you a little bit of the history. Page 1. In the early 1930s, a Seventh-day Adventist Sabbath school teacher named Victor Houtoff began to teach things in his local church that were contrary to Scripture. There's your clue. And by the way, Sabbath school is a breeding ground for these kinds of problems if you're not careful. So managing, one of the things you need to do in managing these kinds of things in your church is know what's going on in Sabbath school. What are your teachers teaching? Elders, deacons, and deaconesses, you need to know what's going on in your classes. And when the things are happening there, don't ignore it. Now, this is one I really meant to put up here, and I'd like to put it up here in... in uh, in the place of Charles Wheeling. Um, let me just briefly talk to you about Charles Wheeling. Charles Wheeling is a an individual that for the last, um, I'd say, maybe 20, even 30 years, he had uh, an idea, some interpretations of prophecy, and he started setting dates for the return of Jesus Christ. And he did that and missed one, then he did another one, he missed another one, and he kept doing that. And I actually thought that he had basically done enough of that that he was vanished and uh, turns out he's still around. I'm not putting that name up there for you to go look for him because let me tell you, you be careful when you start dealing with this stuff. And you need to look at this very, very carefully. Um, I'll mention why when I go back to the one on the anti-Trinitarian movement and give you a little information on that one as well. So anyway, continuing on. So that's all I'm going to say about Charles Wheeling. There's another one on here that Try to remind me, Elder Snaman, you said that there was one more, and I'll come back to it. I don't want to mention it and get sidetracked right now. He wrote a book, second uh, line here. He wrote a book called The Shepherd's Rod. That's where the title of the name of people is Shepherd's Rods, which apply multiple Adventist ministers reviewed and found to be in error. The local church, along with pastors and denominational leaders, became involved in a long process attempting to reclaim him from his error. After much effort to no avail, his name was eventually dropped from church membership. Mr. Hutef would eventually start an offshoot group called Davidian Seventh-day Adventists, commonly referred to as Shepherd's Rod. The distinct beliefs of this group include the belief that the slaughter of Ezekiel 9 will take place after 140,000 Adventists are sealed. All Adventists who are not part of the 144,000 will be slaughtered, and the 144,000 will give their message to the rest of the world. Let me tell you, folks, the right understanding of this group is they are a very violent group. They believe in their responsibility to violently deal with this problem and when the time comes. All right? I mean, this day and age, that should concern us, Okay? <laughs> You know, that. This, yeah. this is a real challenge, and these folks are real folks. How many of you have seen these folks show up at your churches, all right? Let me tell you that they've been at the Lansing Church, the Metro Church, many Detroit area, Detroit area churches, and down in the southern part of the state. They come and they stand outside. They know better than to get on the property, because as soon as they set their foot on the property, we call the police, all right? And they know we'll do it, and they know we have a right to do it. But they will come and they will stand there. Elder Peppers, I saw him out there once, one Sabbath because they came there, I think it was when Doug Batchelor was uh, holding some meetings there, and they were trying to do their duty in doing that, and they were standing out there on the curb, and so he just went up and started dialoguing with them. The boy pulled out his video camera and immediately started recording because what they want you to do is to do something that they can record and then... Get the police to come against you. In other words, if you push them, they will they will try to antagonize you so that if they if it can actually get you to physically do something against them, then they can get that recorded and then they can charge you with with uh, with um, assault, thank you. Do they uh, because of District Congress have a trespassing um to, uh, and, uh, anything legally against these particular people identified as far as escape white let me, let, me, let me come back to that because I want to deal with that in a general way as part of this management, okay? Um, it's the right question to ask and I, I need to give you that answer So I, I intend to do that. The local church, uh, they, they went through this problem and all of this. Um, eventually, let's see, where the 144,000 is, then it says another distinct belief that the shepherd's rod is the Davidic kingdom will be set up in Palestine before Christ returns, pre-millennium in which no man or animal will harm one another, because Davidians teach that the 140,000 must first come from the Adventist church prior to the slaughter of all other Adventists, and prior to the evangelization of the world, they currently aim all their evangelistic efforts toward convincing Adventists of their their claims. That's why they constantly go to the Adventist church. You can't get them to go anywhere else because their theology teaches them they got to get us straightened out. And 140000 is what they've got to get taken care of. All right, now, there's all kinds of other details in here. I'm not going to take the time to get into today. You can read this on your own as a tool that if you're encountering them, that you'll have some information. What I want to tell you right now is, let's be realistic, folks. I've got to tell you honestly that nobody that I know of who has gotten invested in this theology, or the anti-Trinitarian movement has ever been won back. You hearing me? Unfortunately, when they get this deep, they almost never listen to the spirit of prophecy counsel or the word of God. They're always right, and they know that we're wrong, and they simply deal with it that way. And you know what? We live in this battle. This should not surprise us. But you know that the Sunday keepers say the same thing about Seventh-day Adventists. You see why we need to know our Bibles? It is going, the truth is going to be so close to error, and error is going to be so close to truth, that if we don't know our Bibles, and it's not based upon our relationship with Jesus, we will be confused. You and I need to know what's going on. The best way to protect yourself against aberrant theology is to know the truth. The best way to know a counterfeit bill from a true bill is to know the true bill. Because if you know what the real bill looks like, you'll never be confused by a counterfeit bill because it has something wrong with it. So you have to know that bill. You have heard that illustration before. And the same is relative here with the truth. Now, I've given you this as a tool, but I don't have time to try to get into every piece of that theology. So the question is, what do we do when we encounter these kinds of situations? Now, you know, there's an appropriate time for us to sit down and have some dialogue with folk. The appropriate time and the most successful time in connecting with people that are getting caught up in this is when they first get caught up in it when their hearts are confused, but they're still trying to figure out what the truth is. And one of the best tools you and I have is Adventist history. Adventist history is a tremendously valuable tool. In my afternoon class yesterday, I was talking about a couple of uh, uh, four ways that the devil came in to try to sidetrack the true message of righteousness by faith. One of those tools were the fanaticism of two individuals, Stanton and Caldwell. Those individuals came and had this idea that the Adventist Church was Babylon, wrote a paper about it called The Loud Cry, got people like Caldwell, Stanton got Caldwell to kind of connect with that. They went running off to Australia and they were trying to get other people involved with what they were doing. That history often will help people say, wait a minute, this kind of thing has happened before. This kind of false theology has happened before. The issues that we are dealing with today is not new. This anti-Trinitarian movement, this has been around for 2,000 years. And the church, Christian church, including the Adventist church, has had its time of going back and forth on this issue. History will help us in relationship to that. Of course, the Bible and the spirit of prophecy are a clearest part of that. But we need to, at the beginning, try to help people to have an open heart, to look at history and realize that this theology is a quick way out of the church and eventually a quick way away from Jesus Christ. And that's what often happens. People get caught up in it and they disappear off of that. So let's say that we have people come to, to our church and we have a problem with them. This family, for example, they seem to be the most active shepherd's rods, though I believe they're more in Michigan than just them. They often show up at camp meeting. I don't know, I haven't been paying attention to whether they've been here or not. Uh, most uh, Last year, I believe they were trying to stand down way at the corner to try to catch people down there as they were leaving. They'll hand their, theology, you know, their pamphlets out and that kind of stuff and, and all of that. What do you do when they come to your church? You deacons, deaconesses, and elders need to have a plan. Chances are these kind of folk, anti-Trinitarian or whatever, are going to come to your church. Plan ahead. Be watching. Remember what we were talking about before? It's your responsibility as shepherds to be watching for this, but having a plan for this when it comes. <clears throat> you can wait till it happens, and then you've got to try to figure out what to do, or you can calmly happen, handle it when, it when it takes place. The shepherd's rods usually now they handle this two ways. I have heard of them just come and start sitting in the church. People don't know who they are. So they just sit there. And that's what, the, I understand they've done that. I think they did that in Ann Arbor. I think they did it in a number of other places. And then they just sit there and they start making friends with people along the way. Well, you can't, you know, anybody that comes in your church, uh, please, uh, are you a shepherd's rod? Uh, you know, if you're a shepherd's rod, please don't come in. You don't do that with people, right? We, we're not going to do that. But when this comes to the surface, what is your plan? Your plan is to immediately confront it. And if they are shepherd's rods, and or Davidians or whatever term they may happen to use in relationship to this, I would tell you, you need to be very kind, but very forthright. And the way you manage this is by telling them, um, understand that uh, this is the foundation of your belief from the things I've been hearing, being taught, told by, you know, you've told some of the church members here. And is it true that uh, your belief is... uh, about you know, as a, whatever, you might have to deal with some of the theological terms. That's why I've given you some of this information here. They don't always like to be called shepherd's rods, but some of them don't care whether you, what you call them. But if they, uh, they'll probably admit to it. And even if they don't admit to it, if you have evidence that that is what their theology is, you've got to understand. My suggestion to you is to kindly but firmly say, thank you very much, but please do not return. Did you just hear what I said? Please do not return. Now, why do we do that? Okay. Okay. Uh, yes. What's another reason that we're doing that? I'm sorry? They're dangerous. Exactly. What else? Keep going. I mean, there's no one right answer. Okay. It's disruptive. It is uh, uh, something that begins to destroy the unity of the church, and we legally have a right to, Elder Gallimore used to use this term a lot, we have a right to free association, a legal right to free association, which means that we can associate freely as a group. But if somebody comes to our group that does not believe like we do and is disruptive to that process of unity, we have a legal right to ask them to leave. And if they refuse to leave, we have a legal right to call the police. And the police will come and ask them to leave, escort them or physically take them away if they refuse. So we have that legal right and it doesn't feel good to do that. That's why I'm telling you, you need to have this conversation ahead of time because it doesn't feel good to do that. And if you wait to the last minute, you're not going to have the courage or the, uh, the strength of purpose to be able to go ahead and do this. When I lived in Southern California, they told us that the time to prepare for an earthquake is not when the ground was shaking because you don't have time to prepare for that. You have to prepare for an earthquake with a purpose and a plan in your mind that you know how you're going to respond in that instant. And they told you what to do. By the way, what they told us to do was been proven to be very dangerous, and don't do it that way. They said get in the door jam. They tell us if you go in a door jam, that's a place where a good place where you get cut in half, and don't do that. They say go and now they say go and lie next to a bed or a desk or something like that, so that the walls falls on you, the desk stops it. And well, anyway, I get off on, on sidetrack. My point is. The idea is being prepared, having a plan, know what your strategy is going to be. That allows you to keep calm. Remember the shepherd's rods especially, they're trying to agitate you. They want you to get stirred up emotionally. They want you to do something that will be embarrassing, that they can catch and they can use against you. That is their strategy. Now, the Branch Davidians and the shepherd's rods, the Branch Davidian folk that Elder Howard encountered, do not seem to be behaving the same way as the shepherd's rods. I don't know exactly what that is. They are a a progressive group. And what happens with these groups is they will take steps along the way and they will eventually, excuse the word, branch off and go different directions. Um, David Koresh was part of this branch connection. And all of that. And the, this group that I met in my office recently that came out of the group that, uh, that, um, uh, Elder Howard was dealing with that actually the beginning of that that those people said, please don't connect us with David Koresh. We don't have anything. We don't, whatever. They don't even want to be associated with them. But what they fail to recognize is there is, there is connection there. Um, and it eventually leads in the directions they don't want to go. But we have to be fair to them and say, okay, you don't happen to believe like them, and that's fine, but you still don't believe like we do. And whether they are a more aggressive, and I call it, say, violent type, like this family that goes around, or, or they are this poor, more peaceable group, they're still, theology is divisive. And, and I told this, and these folk who came to me, I listened to them for a while, they left me with some books, they always do, And they're trying to convince me that they've got the right idea. I've listened to some of their material and and done that kind of work. And I said, I just want you to know that um, if you come to our churches, you will be asked to leave. And I said, I don't like doing that, but I have to do that. Now, the problem is that I just held some evangelistic meetings down in their neighborhood, just baptized a dear lady who sat in that class one day in 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 our evangelistic meeting on Log Revelation. And one day, she lit at the end of the meeting, she said, I finally found the truth. Unfortunately, what I didn't know is that one of the persons, the people that was helping us lead in that meeting had gotten connected with these people and was already starting to go down that track. And she connected with this lady and has already taken her out. And we're only talking six months since that all happened. It breaks my heart. It breaks our heart when we see it. But as I've counseled the pastor and the others there, I've said, you've got to say no. You can't let them continue to stay in your church. The longer they do, the more they build these connections, and eventually they start pulling people out. And when you initially stop them, it sometimes causes disruption because when you stop them from coming or you have to disfellowship them, it becomes a big light, you know, light, uh, show in the church and they see that and that sometimes connects more. It's one of those dangerous things that you have to do but you can't ignore it. This is not the wheat and tares, folks. This is the devil and there's a difference. The wheat and the tares are people that are just slightly different and have difference of opinion. But the devil himself is blatant, aberrant theology that leads so far away. These folk that I talk to, they believe that there's four in the Godhead and one of them is a woman, the Holy Spirit. Okay, get into it and read it. It just goes on and on and on. And, it, you know, that was one of the things that attracted this lady that, that we baptized. She likes things that connect with ladies. All right, and so that theology was attractive to her. All right, that's enough on that one issue. Let me talk about the anti-Trinitarian movement and the challenges that exist in that part of that theology is uh, says and the biggest argument the anti-Trinitarians and the seventh day Adventist church today are using is that the early pioneers believed this therefore we should that it very simply put that's what they have, a book called uh, About the Pioneers, and it looks really good. We love the stories of our pioneers. So you pick up this book with these nice pictures of all these pioneers, and you get into it, and then you begin to find out that they're teaching that what they believe back then is what we should be believing today about the anti-Trinitarian work. Folks, this one is one of the most destructive... And even in the last two weeks, a personal friend of mine who is a theology professor, was a theology professor in the Seventh-day Adventist, one of our universities, stepped away from the Seventh-day Adventist church to take up this theology. I'm just floored. I'm brokenhearted. And I I, uh, had a friend of mine, another friend called me, and, uh, and I told him, I said, I'm broken hearted about the situation. He called and he gave me some of the background, told me that he had talked with his friend for a period of time. And, and the guy still kind of searching, but uh, still kind of headed off that direction. He sent the, the statement this guy wrote. And with that, he gave me a warning. And you know what? I want to give that warning to you. If you get some of these kinds of things, don't think you're strong enough to read this. Get somebody else who's strong along with you. If you feel you have a reason to need to read it because of your responsibilities, then get someone to sit with you and pray as you read and ask God to guide you because the devil's too smart for you. He's too smart for me. I'm not going to read that alone. I want, this, this, guy is, this guy was a preacher here on the campground. I mean, that's all I'm going to say at this moment. Okay? This is serious stuff. This is serious warfare that we're in. Now, the way that the anti-Trinitarians have been working in the Michigan Conference, mostly on the west side of the state, they've been able to go there. There was a pastor, well, there was a pastor in the Michigan Conference, not the one I was just talking about, because the one I was talking about preached here, but was not a Michigan pastor. But there's a Michigan pastor by the name of Daniel Mesa, Daniel Mesa himself about a year ago came out and he became, has become a spearhead of this movement in the United States. As a matter of fact, they hold camp meetings from time to time in the state of Michigan, and they draw, I don't know how many people, I haven't gone over to see, and I don't want to go over to see, to be honest with you, although I'm tempted to do that. But they make sure they hold it at a time would and may be a challenge to be able to do that. At any rate, so... Um, That's how serious this has become. And we've had several churches that have been devastated by this. And one church, this is the place where we took too long. We sent a Seventh-day Adventist minister to go in there and spend a year as an interim pastor in that group trying to help them get straightened out. It didn't work. This pastor knows his stuff, is a good theologian, um, as well as a good Seventh-day Adventist minister, and he was not successful in being able to reach them, Elder Lauren Nelson was not able to get through to them. We sent another interim pastor in there. He also tried to work with them, was not successful. That that group eventually took out several there. We had to disfellowship them from the church. That started with a disfellowshipping of a man up in Cadillac. They had the same situation. Since that time, a number of people in a number of churches have had to be disfellowshipped because it's not just that they kind of study this. They are evangelistic about it and they go around to these various churches and they deal with uh, bringing these people in and they they make friends with people then they start inviting them to their homes they sit down they start teaching with them pretty soon those people stop attending your church and they start going to this group and then they start coming to your church trying to teach everybody and all that kind of thing all right now I've run out of time and unfortunately that's the case but let me mention to you Again, part of the strategy. Let me try to summarize this for you. If you're encountering this kind of situation, you have already developed a plan. Number one, with me? Sat down with your deacons and deaconesses, and you have uh, elders and pastor, and you've developed a strategy for what you're going to do when you encounter any of these kinds of situations from any of these kinds of circumstances. Another one that's very subtle in our classes today has to do with what we call Maxwellian uh, theology, and it is uh, deals with a substitutionary atonement, and it goes away from what the Seventh Day Adventist Church and the Bible teach about the substitutionary atonement of Jesus. It's very subtle, it's very enticing, and there are many Sabbath school class teachers teaching this, especially if they happen to have come out of Loma Linda University. In Loma Linda University, Maxwell was a teacher down there. He taught Sabbath school classes Many and many doctors and many dentists especially got caught up in that and then go and teach other people. Now. Don't look at every doctor and every dentist with suspicion. I'm just telling you that's a little bit of how it got around. Um, that one's not as destructive as this, but it is still leading away from the Word of God and where it needs to be. One, have a plan. Execute that plan when it comes. Probably, you need to deal with those individuals who are members of your church appropriately with the discipline steps. So number two is develop Uh, A disciplinary process specific to the needs of those individuals. Your purpose is punishment or redemption? Redemption. You're trying to redeem them. You're trying to save them from this. But if they do not respond to you, you have to take a stand in relationship to that. And eventually they may have to be disfellowshipped. Unfortunately, I'm going to tell you, you probably are going to wind up there with these groups. They are too entrenched. And once they get into it, you have to deal with that. The third step of managing this, its not complicated, but the third step of managing this is that if they come to your churches, you've got to keep them from coming there. You need to help them to understand, and let me be real clear on this, they are no longer, you, you, you tell them they no longer are welcome at your church. We love you, we care about you, but you're no longer welcome to come to this church or any of our meetings. I want you to know that if you come back again, we will ask you to leave. And we will expect you to do that. If you do refuse to leave, we will call the police. Now hear me. You tell them that. The best way to do this, the legal way to do this is to also give them a letter that tells them that they have no legal right to come on the grounds and that they are being asked to stay away. And if they come, the authorities will be called. I hate to do that. It is so against my nature. And I was called to be a gospel minister to bring people into the church. I'm standing here telling you that you need to call the police and tell these people to stay away. That breaks my heart. I've sat down and met with these folk and I've talked to them and I've pleaded with them. I've gone out to lunch with them. I've prayed with them. And it goes no place. The last time I sat down with one of these Antitrinian friends of mine, I said, I think I understand that this is where you're at, right? And you have no intention of going back on that, right? I said, I'm sorry, but I'm still your friend, but we are done. I'm not having this conversation with you again. This is one of the individuals that had been part of this group for two years. I wasn't going to spend any more time. I've had other pastors who said, well, we need to talk to them. So they did, and it's done nothing. Okay, so let me finish that, and then I'll get to this because I'm already over time. You need to take that. But please, it's not you as an individual. It's you as the church. That's why you need to have a plan and a process so that when this happens, you implement that process. And that process is that you take a stand against them being there. If you need to take the point of telling them not to return, then get your pastor to write a letter to them Authorized by your board, letting them know that they are no longer welcome. If you get to that point, get counsel from your pastor and the ministerial department. That's me, okay? (laughs) All right? And, And let them know, and we will guide you through that process. Fortunately, it's not happening all the time. Those are the three main steps. The most important step is the fourth one. Before, during, and after. Pray, pray, pray. Get your people together to fast and pray. There's only one way we will get these people back, and that is by being so serious about caring about them that we will come together and we'll pray together. We'll do a time of fasting and praying and sword, Say, Lord, please bring these people back to truth. That is the only answer we have in dealing with these problems. We don't have magic bullets. All this material I've given you has never persuaded anybody that I know of but what it is there for you to do is to remind you we're on the right path with the truth of the Word of God, all right? All right, has this class been helpful? Yes. Let's bow our heads. Father in heaven, this is a conversation that we just don't really wish we were having to have. But these leaders have come here today because they're honestly seeking counsel. And because of the fact that we live in these, these last days when we knew we wouldn't be encountering this problem. It's prevalent and it's spreading. But the good news is Jesus and his truth is really the answer. I pray that the message of righteousness by faith and the 1880 message that Jesus gave to us that we might be able to have the root in him will be the message that we teach that it begins to root out this kind of evil. So Lord, as we go our ways, may we have your direction and your protection. And I thank you in Jesus' name.